Welcome to Arena Craft, a Magic the Gathering podcast dedicated to Arena, Pioneer, and newer formats. My name is Arjuna, I am your host, and thanks for joining us again for another edition of this show. This week, we have all been getting into Theros Beyond Death, the new set, and it has been sweet. I've definitely been playing the heck out of it, um, spent... Most of the first week playing standard, and just recently I have been getting a lot into draft. So I'm excited to talk about both of those formats. Today we are going to be focused more on the former. We're going to be going into main standard archetypes that we've been seeing on the ladder. I have a very special guest joining us today, so I'm excited to bring him on soon. But yeah, basically at the beginning of a format... There's always this period of uncertainty, and especially because we haven't had any large tournament, uh, you know, tournaments going up or tournament results to look at. It makes it a little bit harder for whether you're a spike or a casual player, just knowing where to invest your wild cards, knowing which archetypes are actually viable, knowing what is a good investment of your time, your money, your wild cards and what isn't. And it can be pretty hard, you know, because you get a lot of sweet new cards, exciting build-arounds, and you know that some of them are going to pan out and some of them won't. And so it can be a little bit difficult without any high-level events right at the beginning of the format to help you shape your understanding of the metagame. However, that is what we're hoping to start chipping away at here with today's episode and so why don't we just let's let's get into that we're going to be having a conversation about the standard meta that we've been seeing on the ladder in the first week what seems like it's working what seems like it still needs work what seems like it's probably not going to be viable in the long run and we'll also be going over a few individual cards and our assessment of how good they are And now it's time to bring in our special guest for this episode. And this is someone who uh, I've been watching his streams recently. He's been doing a lot of arena content and a wonderful magic player, someone who's introduced me to some pretty sweet decks, and I'm a big fan of his content. Today we have with us Covert Go Blue. Welcome, my man. How are you doing? Yo, I'm doing good. You can always call me CGB, CGB. Uh, anybody out there. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's a covert go blue is a pretty epic mouthful. That doesn't mean much. But that's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start right there. Where, what was the inspiration for your, for your new username? Oh, it's 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 very deep. It's a long story full of uh, betrayal and intrigue. Oh, and geez. it's actually uh, it's kind of embarrassing. But I started streaming with my Xbox and X, I, I got Xbox Live specifically to stream magic duels for a magic duels tournament i wanted to play nice for some reason because i was completely out of magic and magic duels pulled me back in because i could play it from my bedroom and i had to choose a name and it auto suggested this name and i think it's because i play perfect dark and ncaa football games as a university of michigan so Covert Go Blue was the automatically selected <laughs> name from Xbox Live that has somehow stuck as I've gone through all of this. 
<laughs> that's amazing just total like bot generated name <laughs> i yeah, love it yeah. yeah just a bot generated name and <laughs> you'd think i would have rebranded by now but it's how people know me and the cgb thing is a lot easier so that's why i encourage it and yeah that's it not a great story i know Oh, I think it's fantastic. There was a guy that I knew back in my PUBG days, and his screen name was Dixie in your butt. And, oh. <laughs> and apparently he'd done one of those things where like, he'd walked away from his computer and, and someone changed his username to this username, and, and he thought it was so awesome that he just kept it and used it for everything. So, you know... Sometimes you don't get to choose a name, right? I'm, I'm amazed that that one was available, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? That's, that's the real mystery. <laughs> Who let this happen? So, yeah, but actually, I, I dug that you were starting to talk a little bit about your history. That's where I was going to go next. Um, so perhaps you could tell the fine folks listening to this show just a brief history of your time with magic. You know, I know you were, you were telling me previous to this recording that uh, you had also started back in the 90s. So maybe you could give us a quick rundown of, of what you did. Yeah, I got into magic through Boy Scout camp. I was at a summer camp and they just like one person brought one 60 card starter deck of revised. Epic. I remember it had a rock hydra in it and like, it, you know, all five colors, only 60 cards. We di we divided them into two piles and just played them among like, like 20 kids. Right. So I remember like it's summer camp. We're supposed to be learning how to, I don't know, whittle sharp sticks and make campfires and do all that stuff. And instead we, I was always just trying to sneak off to see if there was a spot at the table available so I could play this new card game. I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, a few weeks after I got home, I got my mom to buy decks for my sister and I. I was, I believe, 13. My sister was 11. And we just started playing. Yeah, uh, not a ton of dramatic stuff to report aside from uh, we were in the first Pro Tour, both my sister and I. No way. Finished in 55th and 56th in the very first Pro Tour uh, for Magic the Gathering, Junior's Division, but apparently that's where the action was anyway. And I believe, yeah, I think it is still somewhere that you can find, like, pairings. I played Brian Kibler in that tournament. No way. We were both children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I, I had no idea that your history stretched back all the way to the beginnings of, of tournament play. That's awesome. From the moment I met the game, I didn't just want to play it. I like to compete in it. There's something about the competitive nature of such a interesting game that really spoke to me and to my sister. And we, she was my testing partner through it all. And we did travel and we played events and no huge finishes to note, like pretty much through my teens and into my twenties. I, I think I was a regional champion once back when they had regionals. Not SCG regionals, but back when the DCI sanctioned regionals, and I played in nationals that year. I played in nationals at least three times, but nothing too exciting. Not no huge results. And then after college, life happened, and I got back into Magic because I kind of said Magic duels on Xbox was something I could do without the gang. Like the people I used to play Magic with at all moved on and moved away and I didn't have a local game store I liked to go to very much. So living in the middle of nowhere, 
I needed a way to do it from the computer. And Magic Duels was that. So I met a community around that game. And then they discontinued that game. And then they created Magic Arena. So Magic Arena, much more popular now than Duels ever was, for sure. So did you did you skip Magic Online altogether? Oh no, I was in the beta of Magic Online uh, no back way. when everything was free. The drafts were free. Oh, the everything dream. was free. <laughs> and you know what? That's the only way you could get me to play that yeah, program. Yeah. <laughs> the that second they started me. charging, I was so I I was I just couldn't stand it. And this was back in like my college days. So I, I did pick it up again once where I was like, all right, we're going to give this another try. Lasted a day, unfortunately. I I need the interface to be exciting. I, I, can't, I can't look at the... I was never good at it. This was part of it. I was never good at Magic Online. Mm. I don't know why. I'm a very competitive person, and I would misplay and just wouldn't see things on Magic Online after playing paper so long. Yeah. But it, it feels different on Arena and even on Magic Duels. It, it feels more like the game I love. Magic Online never felt like the game I love. Not not even when I was playing it all day, all night, because it was free. I'm with you. When I first started playing Magic Online, I made so many misplays. And, and the, the first part of it was just getting used to the client that was super clunky and kind of hard to understand sometimes. But then after a while, it was like I couldn't even blame that. It was just something. I, you're right. I just felt kind of disconnected from the game. Or like I just couldn't fully get my head into it. And I mean, I, you know, I did, I learned a lot about magic through playing it because it has like the very kind of militant enforcement of the rules and it, it you know, often chugs through them in a very kind of rigid and mechanistic way. So it kind of shows me all the phases that I hadn't really been thinking about before. Oh yeah. And, and the stack, like before yeah. magic online, the stack was like this figment of our imagination almost <laughs> that we kind of. It was conceptual, but yeah. that was the first place you could really visualize how it worked. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, I mean, like you, I'm, I've am i been so stoked since Arena's come out. It has really kind of revitalized my excitement to play Magic anywhere other than paper. Hence this podcast, hence your awesome stream that I've been watching lately. How long have you been streaming for? Over three years. Nice. But you have to remember there were... There were many years of me and like 10 to 20 other people, magic duels, like the same people every day for almost a year. Nice. And I just streamed for like an hour a day back then. It wasn't a serious endeavor. It was a just something to unwind and honestly to kind of keep that group together because there weren't many of us, but we were pretty passionate about magic duels, this group that actually enjoyed that game and wanted to treat it like more than a joke. So. Yeah, yeah. So my my stream is very old, but I've only been, I would say, concentrating on it for about a year and a half, two years maybe. I, I mean, that's a solid stint, you know? Like, that. that's a lot of commitment. I think it's probably more than, you know, like 90, 95% of the people who stream on Twitch, you know? so. Oh, uh, the Twitch thing, though, I mean, that part of it is it's only max like 10 hours a week. I, I, I kind of limit my Twitch time. YouTube is a much more known, like... Things have gone much better for me on YouTube than Twitch. Mm, so okay. I've enjoyed that. Cool, cool. And and is that mostly making videos or have you actually used some of YouTube streaming as well? Oh, I just I make separate videos for YouTube. I tried YouTube streaming and didn't like it. Uh streaming in general is kind of weird. I'm not sure how much like I enjoy streaming, but I love making videos, if that makes sense. Sure. I'm I'm not sure what it is. Maybe I also seem to be able to 
handle things a lot better when I'm not feeling like everybody's watching what I'm doing. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, and, you know, some amount of curation after the fact can be nice, you know? What are you talking about? Don't edit. <laughs> it's, there's no editing. It's all straight up. <laughs> Straightforward. Can you cut this part? I, I don't like them knowing this. Can you cut this out? <laughs> okay, well, we'll edit this part out then. How about that? Yeah, totally. <laughs> no one will hear this. It's fine. So this brings us to the current era and... More recently, I was watching your stream with the release of Theros. You were playing the the Theros Beyond Death pre-release event. That's when I tuned into you most recently. And I saw you playing some pretty sweet decks for that event. You got my thoughts going. And I actually, because of your stream, I started playing the Mono Blue Devotion deck that you were playing in that event. I am not sure if I should apologize or say <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> go on. Well, you can apologize to my opponents because, you know, they've had to watch me, like, model my way through the combo and stuff. Um, although I, I have to say, as far as combos go, it's an easier one than some. So certainly easier than any of these Vanifar combos that people have been coming up with. At the beginning of this format, I was looking for something to really pull me in, and I wanted to play an archetype that was really different than what had existed in the current standard. And it's actually kind of cool because I had been playing some, I'd been playing a similar deck just like in the previous couple of weeks on the ladder. And, you know, it, it didn't quite get there because it didn't have a sweet combo in it. But I was just really trying to do stuff with um, Cavalier of Gales and Kiara. I thought that was a really strong combo. I was trying to do the Lotus Field with Kiara thing and just mono blue, make a lot of mana and see what you can get done from there. You know, deck felt like it could do strong things, but it wasn't really competitive. But so when I, you know, when I saw you streaming like a, a new iteration of the mono blue deck and especially one with some fun new tools that looked really sweet, I was all in on that. Sweet. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed it. That is definitely one of my, that's probably my favorite deck that I've played in the, the release event. I'm usually messing around with a bunch of things. And then I remember I just couldn't stop playing that deck. I played it so many times that stream. It was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. It's it's really capable of going off and doing a lot. So I thought that we'd do a deep dive on Mono Blue Devotion this show. And then I also just want to discuss the general lay of the land that we've been seeing so far in THB Standard, and especially like what we're running into on the arena ladder. So, you know, I thought that we would just start there um, before we like go really deep. And I just wanted to get your take. I mean, first of all, are you enjoying Theros Beyond Death Standard so far? I love Theros Beyond Death, and I'm not sure how much I love Standard. Okay, okay, <laughs> hot take. Um, I, it, it's it's like I've been thinking about saying it's Theros. I think that Theros Beyond Death might be an absolutely great set, like one of the best. And I think it's too bad that it is going to forever for its existence be in the shadow of a broken set, which yeah. was Throne of Eldrain. I think that that is, I think that's going to be a shame. Those those sets will, ne Theros will never get to stand on its own, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. What do you think? I actually, I like that take, yeah. And I was noticing, you know, looking through these new deck lists, I was noticing how many of the old archetypes 
we're still seeing. And I know that that's a lot of times with a week one standard, people just don't, you know, they just kind of don't quite know what to do, or they tried a bunch of stuff that didn't end up working out. And so they go back to these existing archetypes. So I don't think that that's necessarily exceptional. But I agree, like, for example, you know, looking at latest tournament results, still seeing like a basically standard fires list from the last season, topping it off and definitely seeing a lot of old food lists and elementals lists and simic ramp lists. So definitely, you know, a lot of these existing archetypes are still arguably the strongest. But, you know, that doesn't... Yeah, I'm not quite ready to like throw in the towel yet on the whole thing. You know, like I I think that there is a lot of cool stuff to be done. I think that that is 100% true. I, I, they've set this meta up, Wizards, I mean, has set this meta up completely different from what they've done for years, giving us a new set, a bunch of new cards, a ladder to climb that is ranked and has all these things going, and no tournament results. Like, no high-level ter- competitive tournament results from paper, um, no PTQs from MTGO, just um, no fan. Like they did the Twitch Rivals thing when the last set dropped, or it was after a banning. The very next day, there was a Twitch Rivals. There's no fandom legends right now. There's just no place to read what the pros are doing with these cards and uh, what they found out. So it's a mystery, and it's going to still be a mystery for at least a few more weeks. And the Brewers are celebrating a bit. Because they get to brew before a best deck is just nailed in their face every single day that they log on 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 ladder. But I think that a side effect that's going on right now and will continue to go on is that we have these broken decks from Eldraine. And people are saying, give me a reason to craft something different. If you beat my fires deck, then I'll think about switching. And it's really hard for people to do that. Um, So you still see a ton of Jeskai Fires, because why wouldn't you? There are a few new cards for these archetypes, but the general strategy is the same, and people are saying, why should I craft anything? Like, the the arena economy rewards you if you don't have to craft anything and can wait for somebody to beat the best deck if that's what you have. Totally agree. One of the places that I've been most interested to start in this format, not just because of the mono blue deck we were talking about, but just devotion strategies in general... I think are really exciting. It seems like they've definitely been anticipating this set in the design of the last few sets where they've been giving us, you know, triple pip cards and and stuff, you know, Linden and Ayara and the Cavaliers and stuff like that. I I just want to go down a list of like some of the new archetypes that we're seeing and and what we think about them and, you know, just kind of give like a a quick take. Um, One of the decks that I've been seeing the most on the ladder is obviously this mono black devotion deck, which was a lot of people's starting place for the format. Um, Definitely the reprint of Gary, Grey Merchant of Asphodel. Ah, Gary. You know, he, he was a house last time and he's trying to become a house again. This deck is clearly strong and it can clearly kill you on turn five or very quickly thereafter on turn six if, if someone has a good curve out. Abusing cards like Yarok's Fenlurker and Ayara, of course. I've seen some decks even run Bolus's Citadel as like a fun top end. 
And then, of course, you know, running Nightmare Shepherd to capitalize off of, you know, maybe you, you manage to sack your Gary and then you manage to get two triggers and that's usually game over. Yeah, in, in perfect world land, right? You're opening with some one-drop Gutterbones cat, Knight. You're playing a Yarx Fenlurker. You're playing an Ayara. You're playing a Nightmare Shepherd. I guess if you open with a Witch's Oven, that's where it's perfect. But a Yara can be the sack outlet, too. And then you play Gary and sacrifice it and get double Gary triggers, and the opponent is dead. They they came, they saw their life total is zero. It, it's over. So I guess that's the dreamy... Uh, curve of mono black devotion what do you so what do you think is this deck legit is this thing going to be a contender i'm I, okay so i've been skeptical so far and one of the reasons is that it just seems very very susceptible to disruption so it seems like if someone kills your ir if someone kills your shepherd if the gary plan doesn't work out like if plan a of burning people out with gary doesn't work i think the deck can really fall down from there I've had multiple games against the deck where I beat them at one life, <laughs> you know? Wow. <laughs> it's happened to me On multiple times. And I think one of the problems of the deck is that, you know, so you have all of these synergistic creatures with the black pips on them. But then if you look at them on the battlefield, you're like, great, I have a 1-1 one, one for 2. I have a 2-4 for 5. I have a 2-3 two, three for 3, you know? And it's just like these creatures... If that explosive game plan isn't working out, then you're kind of left with a bunch of dorks that aren't doing that much on the battlefield. And I think, you know, any deck where, like, you might have an awkward draw where you just drop two Fen Lurkers and then maybe eventually on turn five you drop a Gary and drain for a little bit, it's just, it's not a very exciting deck, right? And so I think... I mean, any deck can look pretty dorky if you draw all of the wrong sides of it, you know, but I think that this deck more than most that I've seen in this format um, seems like it really needs to run hot. That that version of it, 100%. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have to curve out the disruption has to be medium, or if, it, if you are disrupted, you have to redraw the right pieces in the right places. Like, Mono Black, it's better at disrupting than being... It's better when it's disrupting Mm. as opposed to when it's the one trying to avoid being disrupted because it doesn't have counterplay. It's not going to interact with you on the stack. It might have some instant speed removal, but it's the deck that wants to take the right card from the hand, not a card from the hand, which is why I'm really against Fen Lurker. People probably need to be looking at Remorse, Agonizing Remorse a bit more so that they have some selection there. And this format is so fast and snowbally that you just have to get the right cards away from your opponent quickly and it's also pretty painful that they don't have a way to interact with the oven on the battlefield so if mono black is down in oven count mono black has a higher hill to climb with gary so they're in a pretty rough spot where their snowball is a completely reliant on things not only hitting the battlefield but sticking to the battlefield other decks can rebuild faster off of just a few cards so I think Mono Black has to stop going away from I want to have the perfect draw to I need to stop my opponent's perfect draw mm. and then figure out how to win from there. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that would help those decks a lot. The ones I see on ladder mostly, you're playing like Timoret at like two black, two five. Yeah. I, I know it's thick. I know he's got the thick <laughs> ant mask animation. You know, he's got a lot going for him. But this is a deck about card advantage. Some of my favorites that I've seen are straight up running Treacherous Blessing in multiples with no way to sacrifice mm, it. Okay. 
That's no way to sacrifice them at all. <laughs> That's a deck with a dream is what that is. <laughs> Do you remember Suicide Black? This is a very old deck that oh, yeah. it dealt a lot of damage to itself to draw cards and to attack. Xenophage, I think, was a card that did one damage to you every upkeep. It was a one black two two. It's like it's okay if you're losing life. This deck can gain it back quickly. Obviously, Grey Merchant can do it, but it's about cards. Cards. Yeah. You've got to have all the cards. I think I think Mono Black has to look at that and get back to being the disruptive deck, not the deck that just hopes nobody messes with it. Yeah. I, I think that's a really solid assessment because you're right. It's it's like at the end of the day, it can't play like this high attrition resource management game. So it has to, like you said, it has to have surgical answers. You know, it has to, you have to play your threats in the, in the right way. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll see some innovations on it down the line. I think, you know, Mono Black has been strong even before this format. There's been a number of versions of the deck which have seen very resilient you have a lot of cards such as um the black cavalier cavalier of night who's the knight who draws you cards when your creatures die midnight reaper. midnight reaper yep exactly that's a good card yeah. that's another really strong card that can kind of keep you up in card advantage so it just makes me wonder if we might see the right tuned list of this deck with the right balance of devotion card advantage resiliency answers and whatever and especially in the right matter it could be really strong i would love to see a mono black devotion deck at worlds like that that is up on my list of things i would love to see right now heck yeah heck yeah all right codify it put that one on the list <laughs> we'll see if it makes it yeah i don't know that was the first deck that came to my mind what's another archetype that you have been seeing on the ladder well i spent yesterday losing to and today battling with esper hero okay yep so that that's one that i've been playing with today a lot and it this is just one of those decks that pretty much since guilds of ravnica whenever new cards come out that have gold borders on them people say i want esper hero to be good and they dive into that archetype again yeah and there's always optimism around it and I think that the deck's viability and power level sit on just how useful a free 1-1 one, one token is. Right. And I just, I just don't know if they're that useful right now. So I, I'm, a, I'm one of those who wants to believe. And there were matchups today where the hero and his token saved the day. And then there were matchups today where the questing beast laughed at me. And just oh, flew man. right past the tokens <laughs> and ate the planeswalkers and reduced the life total to zero. Embercleave loves one one tokens. Oh my like gosh. really loves it. The amount of removal and instant speed removal that deck needs to be able to hold open early is it's a challenge in the meta. It's very hard to get to a place where that's the right thing. The good news is you've got so many answers. The the three colors, Esper has everything to draw from. It's like you have to have the right tune list against the right deck. So it's very much a 75-card deck, and having every spot right's a big deal. What do you think? Yeah, I'm with you, and it's it's actually, you know, I was thinking this, and I, and I didn't mention it about the mono-black list, but one of the challenges of playing a mono-colored deck in any meta is just having a really limited sideboard. And I agree that... I think Esper might even have like the strongest, it's like the strongest sideboard options maybe of, of any 
color combination, right? Since the banning of Veil of Summer, I think that that is true. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification, right? You just have so many hoses. You have like you know, like one mana counter spells against blue. You have wonderful removal. If I was playing one of these lists, I would definitely have a card like Eat to Extinction in my sideboard. I think that that's like a strong option in the new set that just exiles stuff. Obviously, being able to tweak the number of wraths in your deck is really awesome. And I'm I'm wondering, have these Esper Hero decks been playing Shatter the Sky? Ah, uh, or, or is that like more of a control card? See, there's kind of a thing where you don't want to run your Wrath and your Hero Wideboard, but somewhere in the 75, I think that you should work out a a plan where you can wipe the board. It's just about how, right? Yeah. Um, is Shatter the Sky the right one? Do these decks, do their mana base support Kai's Wrath, or are they leaning harder into Islands? Like, my version didn't have any double black cards, so Shatter the Sky would be better. Yeah, somewhere in the 75, you should be... You should have a board wipe option, at least to keep them honest. There are definitely enough decks that are just flooding the board right now. So obviously Esper Hero has put up strong results in the past, and I'm not saying that it's not a good deck, but I've always been a skeptic. And I think you're right. It really comes down to how good you think the hero is. You know, I've definitely been wrecked by the deck before, but it's definitely not where I would be starting in this format. I just I think that some of the other options like for example if if I was going to play a deck like this I think I would much rather just be playing like the blue white control lists that I've been seeing. Ah that yes that You're deck speaking my language. And I I think it's I think it's just because that deck is running like some of the cards that I think are the most powerful in this format. So great shots of the sky deck for sure. You know, you get access to Gadwick, who's one of my favorite cards at the moment. You can do really disgusting things in that deck with, like, Brazen Borrower and Gadwick just killing people if you want. You know, you obviously you get access to Dream Trawler, which, I don't know, what, what, do you want to talk about this card for a moment? Because I think, like, this is currently at the top of the list for a lot of people of thinking, like, this might be one of the strongest cards in the set, and it, it might be one of the strongest cards in the standard format right now like how have you been feeling about this card it's easily the most one of the most controversial because there are people who don't believe in this card whatsoever mm -hmm. i've been up and down on it i have a crafting guide that i kept where i made my recommendations of how if i were a person of limited means with a collection on mtg arena how many copies of a card would i craft uh, it's something I wrote about on tempostorm.com if you guys want to find it. But Dream Trawler is one of those that's fluctuated pretty often. Five days before set release, I had it as a zero, <laughs> like an absolute zero. Just no respect, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. It was, it was five days out I had it as a two. Then it was like the day of release. I lowered it to a zero after seeing the full set and saying, this won't be important. This isn't how games are going to end. And then five days after release, I re-edited it back up to a two. And it's really one of those things where I'm not sure that we've determined that this is the way we have to end the games. Mm, mm -hmm. if, if we're going to play control, is this what we need? And there are enough matchups right now that the answer is they can't beat this card. Mm -hmm. That There is enough times when you just tap out and drop your Dream Trawler on the battlefield and people can't interact with it. A sweeper is just about it. Um, 
I, I had an interesting game today trying to figure out how to stop a fervent champion when I knew, knew my opponent had a Black Lance Paragon, so I couldn't just tap out and slam my Dream Trawler, because that would have gone very poorly. Um, and I was navigating from way too low of a life total. But this card, it's an end game. Is it the right end game? I think that that's still what's being worked out. And I think there's, I think there's enough to it that people want to believe I'm definitely one of those. I want a Baneslayer Angel that has draw a card written somewhere on it to be good. Um, it, it's kind of an amazing an amazing creature on its own. Are six mana tap out threats going to be what the format is about? I think the answers to this are pretty limited, but it's important for people who are believing in this card so much to remember that right now nobody is trying to beat it. Nobody's playing Liliana's Triumph yet. You know what I mean? Nobody, nobody's nobody's gunning for you at this moment. And Angrass Rampage, Liliana's Triumph, and all the other potential board wipes are lurking. So is this what Blue White actually needs to close with? I will tell you it's the most fun way to close is Dream Trawler and Gadwick. That That is kind of amazing. I could do that all day long. But it is a super powerful card. Do you think that this one... Do you think that when the dust settles, the control decks are going to be main... They're going to have Dream Trawler in their 75. Do you think it's the answer? I, I think in the 75 is a good idea. And I agree with you. I think two is the number. Um, I've seen people kind of like, what's the word? I've seen people saying, no, you need to be bumping them up to three or even four copies. And to me... I believe the term you're looking for is going ham. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Going ham with the flying... Uh, and what is it? Is it a griffin? It's our Sphinx. It's a Sphinx. That's right. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. I'm, I'm missing. I'm just running out of my terminology tonight. You know, I would be wanting to run to, I think, in my sideboard. And I think part of it is just that I, I thought that the blue white control game pre Theros Beyond Death was already pretty strong. And, you know, I think like a combination of just Gadwick, Wraths, Teferi, Castle Ardenvale, Castle Vantress, exploiting your card advantage, exploiting your control, exploiting your counter spells. I already thought that that game was pretty strong. And so I didn't really feel like this deck necessarily needed a finisher. When I look at Dream Trawler, it's almost like the... I feel like Dream Trawler is like easy mode, right? It's so easy mode. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, when you play it and they don't have it, the answer or they're in the they're in a deck that just doesn't have the answer it's as easy as it gets right yeah. right so i think it's definitely a slam dunk for some matchups uh i think there are you know it's like it's like in a control mirror would you be wanting to bring in your dream trawler i'd be skeptical myself well it all depends right are you on the play mm. are you going do you have mystical dispute are you going to resolve your teferi before they do True. so that you can just run dream trawler at them and are they going to keep wraths do they keep wraths can they afford to keep a wrath in a control mirror I don't think they can, right? So I love the control mirror for those mind games. Totally. Um, whereas after board, I almost want any threat in a control mirror, almost anything, and make them respect it, make them have kept the right answers in their deck. Because if they shifted completely to Dovin's Veto, it's really funny when you play the Dream Trawler and they're like, uh, let me look at my sideboard really quick. This is in paper. Um... Yeah, let's go to game three. Yeah, yeah, instant <laughs> right? I know, yeah. it's kind of like people who didn't respect... Oh, why am I blanking on my card names tonight? The Demir three-drop flyer that draws cards from your opponent's Thief deck. Of Thief of Sanity. Sanity. There you go. Yeah. 
kind of like that. It's like if you broke the, the wrong way against Thief of Sanity, you just basically lose on turn three. Okay, here's another thing. I think part of whether you choose to run Dream Troller comes down to whether you're running Elspeth Conquers Death. Because, mm. you know, those cards just go together like... I was going to bring that up when you were mentioning Eat to Extinction. Mm, I've, okay. all, I've replaced Eat to Extinction in every Esper deck with Elspeth Conquers Death so far. I still run Eat to Extinction in Grixis and Demir. But Elspeth Who Conquers Death, I'm playing it more and more and more. And there's nothing that I want to eat to extinction that I wouldn't want to conquer death instead <laughs> most of the time. Well, and I think there's something so brutal to like... You know, let's say that you're you're playing against a black opponent and they thought erasure your you know, your nasty finisher out of your hand, right? And then later in the game you just slam down your Elspeth Conquer's death and you're like, She's back <laughs> You know, it's like yeah. you, it just lends an inevitability. Or even if you're just getting Teferi back, that can be really hard to deal with. Everything about that card can be difficult in the right situation. Yeah. My cynicism around that card was, can you make all three modes decent? Mm, And surprisingly, the middle mode is just enough that it usually catches people off guard a little bit, messes with their plan, screws up a turn where they'd want to play a threat and a removal, right? But now they can only do one or the other. That's kind of what that turn six often is in Magic right now, if you're going back and forth, is you want to remove something and play a threat. You want the back and forth. But now you only get one, and the opponent gets a free threat the next turn, and they have their mana up to either protect it or continue to push the advantage. So that's a card I was super cynical about that I think should be played more. I saw Gabriel Nassif running four of them. My rare wildcard count isn't where I'm just going to slam that down, but I'm definitely up to two and and possibly climbing. I'm enjoying it. Well, and if you think about there are just certain games where you might, you know, you might slam Elspeth Conquer's Death, and then the next turn you might slam a Teferi and get it back, right? I mean, it's there are some pretty broken things that <laughs> you can get going on there as well. So Agreed. I think any any deck, especially any deck, you know, more of a controlling deck running white, I think should seriously consider whether Elspeth Conquer's Death belongs in their 75 somewhere. I just think it's too strong of a card to not consider. I've been convinced. I wasn't convinced, but now I am. Uh, the last few days have really done a number on me with that card. <laughs> yep, yep. I'm loving it. Let's move on to some other decks that we're seeing. No conversation would be complete without Simic Ramp. How are you feeling about this deck right now? I get a lot of complaints about Simic Ramp. Um, I hear a lot of complaints between YouTube and Twitch, but I haven't found it to be broken. I haven't found it to be too daunting. Part of it's probably because I play mostly control lists. And the weird thing with control is it used to be about card advantage, right? Everything's card advantage. Everything is card advantage. So you would try to do everything you could to prevent your opponent from drawing extra cards, and eventually you'll draw more cards than them and you'll win. Like, that's old school blue-white, right? That's the deck I was in love with in, like, 98 or whatever. You know, uh, there was back then. But that's just not true anymore. You can't deny card advantage anymore. The feels-bads when somebody is playing two or three Risen Reefs is legit, but... You kind of, you have to tough through it and just say, okay, they draw a bunch of cards. I'm I'm also going to figure out how to draw a bunch of cards. And I'm going to have the right answer at the right time. I'm not going to keep their hand empty. It's going to be a long game. We're going to have to deal with things. 
And Simic Ramp, like, they can Euro pretty much endlessly. They're always going to be drawing more cards, gaining more life, playing more land. They're going to play Hydrate Crisis. They're going to draw a ton of cards. You have to beat them anyway, which is why I'm a big proponent that Gadwick is still an important card for any of the blue decks, because this is something that you can scale up along with and against Hydroid Crisis with. And I keep on decking these Simic decks. Oh, really? On... You're, just, oh, you're yeah. just running them out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, like, you just you just run them out of stuff. I'm, I, I can't tell you how many times people have been Cavalier of Thorns, Euro, over and over and over till they're down to like 10 cards in their deck. And I'm just rolling with it, rolling with it. You sweep at the right time. You draw at the right time. You interact at the right time. And then eventually there's this long pause as they click on their deck in their graveyard and then they scoop. Um, but it, it's a different kind of magic, right? Yeah, it's not the control yeah. that I'm used to. It's every turn is this endless, it's like a, it's just this dance that goes on and on without turning this into a dance of the manse reference, but it just keeps going. And you have to always be prioritizing what do I do this turn that prolongs the game? Not how do I keep them from drawing cards? They're going to do that anyway. It's like, how do I make this game as long as possible for myself so that they don't get the window to close you and beat you with those cards they draw? It's very strange. Uh, I mean, I think Simba Ramp is awesome, but I'm not convinced it's the answer. I don't know that it's the best deck. It just doesn't interact enough. I think people uh, cut Brazen Borrower and pretty much all interaction that isn't Agent of Treachery. And I think they still need it. I wouldn't be surprised if you ended up in a Simic deck with Brazen Borrowers and Questing Beasts to go, go along with like Euro and Nyssa because they're not closing the game. They're all the value in the world without closing the game is what I've seen so far. Yeah. I've seen that too, and it's actually, that's one of the decks that makes me thankful to be playing a deck with an alternate win con, you know, such as the, the Mono Blue Devotion deck, because it's... I think that deck loves Simic, right? You, oh, like, that it's, is one it's, of your favorite matchups. It's such a great matchup, because you're like, sure, play more lands, sure, play a big crisis, you know, oh, be my guest, play another Euro, you know, and meanwhile, you're just like building towards your combo and building towards your combo, and... Usually those when I lose against Simic, it's not because Simic beat me. It's because I just failed to do my thing, right? It's like I just didn't get there fast enough. Or, you know, I, I just couldn't chain together the combo. But I think other than that, it's I totally agree. It makes me really happy to be playing a deck which has another vector to play along. Because, yeah, I think if you're playing like your average mid-range deck or even some of the aggro decks on the ladder and you run into simic ramp it's probably a, like a nigh unwinnable matchup if you're playing one of these decks that wants to like curve creatures into some kind of maybe like an ember cleave finish or some damage thing you know if you're if you don't have a perfect curve out or if you don't just catch everything just right then the simic death is it's just gonna laugh at you oh yeah <laughs> simic doesn't care about your damage I, I've been saying it since, whatever, War of the Spark. Was that Nyssa? It's like, if you miss a land drop and they play Nyssa, you can go to the next game now. Like, you can't fight that thing without all the resources that you could possibly have available. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of ridiculous, that card. <laughs> indeed, indeed. You know, it's funny. The first time I reached Diamond on the ladder playing Arena was with a Nissa deck. And then 
the next season that I reached Diamond again, I just happened to be playing a Nissa deck. And <laughs> it was just like, it really stood out to me at the time. Like, there's just a really high correlation between running Nissa and winning. And that's been true in Mythic Championships for many players as well. I mean... Do you think, like, I get a lot of complaints about Nyssa on my stream. We're probably at an all-time high in Nyssa frustration. I still don't think you can possibly think about removing a card like that for the from the format. It's a five-mana Planeswalker. There's so many things you can do against it. I think it's more of like a complaint about almost variance itself. Because like I said, when you miss a land drop or you can't interact when Nyssa does come down, now you're dying. But, like... You can. There are so many ways to interact with the card right now. I, I feel like these. I feel like these players just don't want to play blue. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. I mean, if you're a fan of strategies that just get beat up by Nissa, then I could. I could imagine just being like, "Oh my gosh, it's been months." Or, when did War of the Spot come out? It, that was like six months ago, eight months ago. A million. Yeah, I know. It just ago. it feels like a ancient eons. history, right? <laughs> but anyway, it's just it's been in the format for so long, and I think that you know the card it reminds me of is Gideon, ally of Zendikar, where mm. it's like in that format, people would just by the end of it, they were just so sick of Gideon, right? They yep. were like, "I'm so tired of this planeswalker just coming down, punching me in the face, beating me up." going to the next game. And I think that that's just where we're at. You know, we've just kind of reached saturation. This card's always been one of the strongest cards in the format. And I mean, you know, it's not alone. It's like another example more recently was Teferi 5, you know? Like, that was a card where for the entirety of the format, Teferi was just kind of hanging over it. And you just always had to respect it. And so I think I agree with you. I think that Wizards has... You know, they've proven pretty definitively that they're like, look, we're going to print strong five mana planeswalkers and you're just going to have to deal with them. Right. I mean, I guess Gideon was a far drop and, you know, so that's a bit different, but <laughs> I think we're all supposed to just be grateful she wasn't three mana at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Right. Take what you can get. So this actually, okay. While we're on this topic, then I wanted to ask you what you thought about the new Ashiok, Ashiok Nightmare News. How have you been feeling about the power level of this card in standard so far? When I read the card, I thought it was irrelevant, like Obnixilis levels of irrelevant. I was looking for, I was looking for a Demir Planeswalker that could be kind of what Teferi was to make that archetype matter. And when I read Ashiok's abilities and what Ashiok did, I was very underwhelmed. Um, everybody's first taste of it was on that like deck that they gave us with Black Lotus in it on Magic Arena. Did you play that event? I did not play that event. I'm oh, kind of bummed that so, I missed it, to be honest. So the joke about Ashiok was that it's really good on turn one because you had two Moxes and a Black Lotus <laughs> in that deck. Okay. And okay. that otherwise it was uh, pretty mediocre. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems, but seems Ashiok, it's, uh, he's impressed. They've impressed me more the more I've played. The biggest thing that, there are two things about Ashiok that I underestimated. The first thing is how often the minus three is just exile target permanent. Everybody plays out their hand pretty aggressively in this format. 
whether it's because they have a rotting uh, Regisaur to discard their hand for them, or because they want every land on the battlefield for Krasis and they're playing a Boreal Grazer or something like that to just lay their hand down on the table. That seems to be where everybody's going. Um, Black Castle is another card that just encourages you to play out your play out your hand, right? There's a lot of encouragement to just play out your hand. So nobody's trained right now, at least for now. Nobody's trained to hold back that last land in case the opponent has an Ashiok. So most of the time, Ashiok is coming down and exiling target permanent and still having two loyalty left over, which is better than Teferi, who only had one loyalty left over at that point. So I underestimated how often at five mana, Ashiok would come down and exile target permanent for minus three making it a much better ability than I expected. The second thing that I underestimated was how quickly this card can minus seven. This card is only plus plus minus seven. It's it's a two-turn minus seven, which I didn't process at all when I read the card. Like, Obnixilis is minus eight, I believe, for an emblem, but that difference is pretty astounding because the opponent does have to respect Ashiok's ultimate pretty quickly, quicker than I expected. So I had this card as something I wasn't even going to craft. I was going to take the one I got with a pre-order or something, and that was going to be all. But I'm up to... I did try spamming four of them in a few decks. That's too much. I think that I think the right mix, if you're going to play Esper, Ashiok, anything like that, is two or three Ashioks and some Elspeth Conquering Death to bring it back and continue the uh, hand-hating spam of Ashiok. Well, and also to have more cards in Exile, right? Yes. And I think it's one of the things that, again, makes a darky card like Fenlurker seem a bit more relevant. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Agonizing Remorse. Step step your game up. Agonizing Remorse is a better, <laughs> there you go. A better one. <laughs> so Low-key standard all-star, Agonizing Remorse, coming at you. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I think Ashiok is, has been underrated overall. I actually think it's a well-balanced Planeswalker. I would like to see more five-mana Planeswalkers at Ashiok's power level. It seems a little bit below Nyssa in terms of power level. You know, definitely, like you were saying, comparable to Teferi, probably a little below Teferi in power level. But I think that's right where five-mana Planeswalkers need to be. Well, yeah, they don't make free mana. Like, Nyssa makes free mana, right? Exactly. Nyssa is actually a three-mana Planeswalker. Teferi, a hero of Dominaria, was exactly the same way. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, three-mana Planeswalkers, yeah. (laughs) So uh, when... When Planeswalkers don't make free mana, something about them feels more balanced. Like, you actually have to tap out to play it, and you don't get this incredible counterplay. But yeah, Ashiok, I I agree with you. Um, Very Right where you want your Planeswalkers to be after all this War of the Stark... War of the Stark? War of the Spark passive uh, Planeswalker nonsense, and Oko, and yeah... This is this is the planeswalkers we deserve. Exactly. So so to round out this conversation on planeswalkers, how have you been feeling about Elspeth? Oh, Elspeth. Uh not good enough to be any kind of a controlling win condition. This this card looks like it has versatility in that, you know, gain five life ability and the escape ability, which gives my kind of old school heart the idea that I'm going to grind, right? I'm going to play this like three or four times until they don't have the answer for it. And that's pretty silly in a dream trawler universe where (laughs) you just play that card once and uh, you run away with the game the next turn. You play Elspeth for the fifth time, they probably still just attack it or kill it. Um, But Elspeth she was made to rumble. She's she's angry. If you can drop Elspeth and use the minus one right away, 
and she's not under pressure because you pressured your opponent so much that they can't take a turn to remove your Elspeth, and you have the body so that you can use another minus one right away, you're, you should win that game. Like, Elspeth is a... It's the... It's the white aggro snowball that they didn't have. It's the, she's not nearly as good as Nyssa. She's not nearly as as good as like these cat oven mayhem devil setups. But if you get on the front foot with mono white or with some kind of a white aggressive strategy and you can Elspeth safely, you can close the game. Whereas before those decks just fell apart. They got wrath. They did nothing off the top. Things got bad. And now if you get wrath. You hit your opponent really hard with your Elspeth the first time. Now you rebuild with some tokens. You play some other threats. The opponent asks to Wrath again, and you still have Elspeth. So it's an aggressive card. You have to love, I think, Mono White. That's the only home i found that makes sense. You have to really love that deck, I think. I agree. I totally agree. Like I've played against some, some blue-white control decks running Elspeth as a finisher, and it just looks pretty laughable to me. You know, I was like, you've already got Castle Audenvale, right? So it's like right. Elspeth just seems, you know, against the plan, basically. Whereas Ashiok and Dream Trawler are just all all about that plan. Exactly. You know, they, they love this plan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Dance of the Mance, for that matter, in an enchantment-based set, there's a lot of targets. So, yeah, you can do a lot better than Elspeth as your win con. Yep, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think Elspeth deserves her place as a four-mana Planeswalker. I definitely think she's going to show up in the standard. Um, like you said, aggressive decks, I think that's really where Elspeth wants to be. Hard for me to imagine seeing her. Maybe if you end up in some super grindy matchup, maybe if, if standard goes in a grindier direction, maybe if um, people are exploiting even more graveyard synergies, you know, perhaps if you're milling Elspeth, yeah. right? But it's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's just, it's hard no, to imagine just, it. It's not happening. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just not happening. Like that, that magic is over. They, they, like right now, the cards are too powerful. They end games too quickly. They must be answered. You don't have four to six mana to spend on one ones and hope to grind with it. You must close. I, I get these kind of questions and I talk to people every day. It's like, you must actually win the game. You must close. You must turn the thing sideways. The opponent must die. Yeah. <laughs> we live in a world where people are just trying to cast like a, you know, finale of devastation, right? Or they're trying, you know, people are just trying to go so hard over the top. People are just assembling such big board states that they're just going so hard. And I agree. It's like, this kind of like grindy, kind of nickel-y, dimey, card advantage stuff. It's just not, it's not really working anymore. So I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think you really nailed the current standard format. It keeps nailing me. So I under, like, I, I'm a control mage who likes to grind. So yeah. it's punched me in the face enough that I've gotten the message and I still mess around with these decks. So I'm preaching, uh, I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm also the congregation. It's It's awkward. <laughs> and I think it's interesting how like even the lower curve aggressive decks are still basically trying to exploit six mana cards. You know what I mean? Like Embercleave is a really perfect example. You're almost never casting it for six, but it is it's just another kind of expensive, powerful, uh synergistic over the top kind of a card, right? And so I think like even your lowest curve aggro decks are trying to exploit these expensive high cost cards. And I, I just, I think that that's kind of where we're at. You know, it's like if you're looking at your deck and you don't have some kind of top end, then you're just probably not going to have enough. 
as well as interaction to keep the opponent from having theirs. I, I think, for better or worse, the format right now is designed that you should be able to enter your end game around turn four and five, like in that window, like turn 4.5, you are in your end game. There is something that you should be able to do with your assembled pieces that starts to resemble broken, absolutely broken, you know, back to sacrifice Jun food with like Corvold are good examples of that. And so is anything with Nyssa, uh, anything whatsoever with Nyssa. Ember Cleave is another good example of that. And um, if you're going to survive in that world as a control mage or grinding mage, you not only have to interact on those crucial turns, but then come turn seven or eight, which good on you. You know, you, you did it. You, you survived to turn seven or eight. Now you got to turn the corner. And I think that's why, that's why I think Dream Trawler is the hype because it can do the job. It's, it's got the goods. That brings me to why don't we talk about this Mono Blue Devotion deck because I've been really excited to to cover this. And I think the Mono Blue Devotion deck is a really good example of a deck which is kind of teched to to do what you were talking about, to like have an explosive turn and really turn the corner. So do you want to lead us through the core building blocks of this Mono Blue Devotion combo deck? Sure. Um, let's see. The main thing is when you read Thassa's Oracle, right? Um, Thassa's Oracle, blue, blue, and then I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have it in front of me. Uh, one, three, look at your top car- X main cards where it's equal to your devotion to blue and put one of those on top of your deck. So it's a scry equal your, to your devotion to blue, usually two because that's what the Oracle is. But if your devotion to blue when you resolve it is greater than the number of cards in your library, you win the game and which is pretty epic to have printed on a two drop creature right (laughs) pretty amazing pretty amazing and certainly something that should probably perk up most of the deck builders uh out there and most people i think right away turn to self mill for this but i would say immediately that self mill is the wrong way to go about it and that all you really need to do is have so much devotion to blue on the battlefield that it just gets it it outdoes the number of cards in your deck. Um, Usually somewhere between 20 and 30 is where you end up winning the the game. And if you want to play a a game where you vomit your hand out, you need to make a lot of mana. So Nyx Lotus is not Nykthos, Shrine to Nyx, uh, but it is what we were given as the way to convert devotion to mana in the set. Four mana artifact, tap for devotion equal to a color of your choice, and it enters the battlefield tapped. So... There were two big, there's two big obstacles when something enters the battlefield tapped. You don't get that play off of it right away. So in order to make it useful quickly and not be a total punt of a turn that Teferi laughs at, Teferi Time Raveler, just bouncing your tapped artifact that you paid four mana on, that's a hideous joke. Um, there are Leyline of Anticipation, Kiora can untap it. Leyline of Anticipation lets you flash it in. And then after that, um, you pretty much start making a ton of mana and drawing a bunch of cards. Gadwick the Wizened draws a bunch of cards with as much mana as you can make for your devotion. And to keep untapping and reusing the Lotus, you use Corridor Monitor and more copies of Kiora to consistently untap and replay it as you get deeper and deeper in the deck. And the flex spots are Thassa, the god of the, the not god of the sea, that's the old one. 
whatever the new Thassa, deep dwelling. Yes, Thassa deep dwelling. And then to make the devotion run hotter, you have Cavalier of Gales. And this tag team of Thassa and Cavalier of Gales is kind of my evil plan B that looks like a plan A until you go off. Because the opponent has to, especially with a Kiora out there, drawing extra cards from these things, the opponent does have to respect a Cavalier of Gales beatdown because it's going to be generating a ton of advantage. And if they spend their time worried about Thassa and Cavalier of Gales, eventually you get the Lotus thing going and you play a Gadwick for way more than they can handle and away it goes. Did I sum it up okay? It's like my first try. I, I think you did an <laughs> admirable job. This is one of those decks, like when I think about a deck which has synergy among the cards, this is like one of the highest synergy decks I can think of where like there are so many two-card combos in this deck that just create like this kind of incremental advantage that all of a sudden just explodes on one turn. And so mm -hmm. I think that that's something that makes this deck so strong to me is you just have these magical things you can do. Like, for example, like you said, Thassa blinking your Cavalier of Gales. It's a simple interaction, but it just it gets you an extra brainstorm, right? I mean, think about a turn like this, right? You can do something in this deck, like you can play turn three Kiara, turn four Thassa, turn five Cavalier of Gales. And what's going to happen on turn five is that you'll play your Cavalier of Gales, you'll draw a card off of Kiara, you'll draw three more cards, you'll put two back on top of your deck, and then come to the end of the turn, you can bounce your Cavalier. I mean, yeah, you, you can flash your Cavalier with Thassa, and then you get another card draw off of Kiara and another Brainstorm off of your Cavalier. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I'm going to back it up for you, though. Like, uh, the Kiora... That is a turn four Cavalier of Gales, and then into the Thassa. So you have the 5-5 five, five board presence to protect your Kiora, and you draw the extra turn. And then you play the Thassa the next turn. It's already turned on, and you draw a card off the Kiora. And you have two mana open. It, it, yeah, it's, it's a lot of juice. It's just so cool. And then, you know, other cool things you can do are, like, if you have a card or monitor out, when you have a Thassa in play, you can start doing all kinds of broken things. Like you can have a really nice turn where you untap your Lotus and you do all of this stuff. And then at the end of the turn, when you're completely tapped out, you can have Thassa blink your Corridor Monitor to untap your Nyx Lotus again. So if you have a, um, a Ley Line out at that point, then you can just keep going off. Or you can just have 12 blue available to do something fun on your opponent's turn if you need to, right? It's kind of amazing when your opponent like attacks you with their creatures and then you go off. <laughs> like you're going off in their combat step. They started their attack and you had like one creature in play. And by the time you're at blocking, you have three Cavalier of Gales in play and two corridor monitors. Like that, oh, that is a really lovely experience. I got to do that against Todd Anderson in the release event. His only, co like his comment afterwards was, nice job, your deck's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> It was really sweet. <laughs> yep. So it's one of my favorite things about this deck is that you can play this kind of this kind of aggro mid range game where you're trying to beat your opponent down with, you know, indestructible six five Thassa, your five five Cavalier Flyers. You can get on board with big creatures really fast in this deck. If you have Gadwick live, uh, and also just 
and our available mana to tap creatures down with Sasa's ability, then it can just make blocking a nightmare for your opponent. And then I just want to outline what will happen on the turn when you go off with this deck. And so it'll usually look something like, you know, you might have six or seven, maybe 10 devotion to blue on the board. And mm-hmm. you'll cast a Gadwick. You know, maybe you'll you'll tap your Nyx Lotus for seven. You'll untap it with Kiara. So then you have 14 mana floating and then you'll cast your Gadwick and you'll leave, you know, depending on what you know is in your deck or what you're expecting to get, you'll leave two or three mana available so that if you draw your next Kiara or your next Corridor Monitor, you can go ahead and slam that down, untap your Nyx Lotus. And then, you know, if you've been lucky enough to get another Gadwick, you can just start chaining Gadwicks. If you haven't, you can start digging with more Cavaliers, growing your Devotion, yeah, typically once you untap the Lotus, you have an Oracle or a way to like blink the Oracle and still have instant speed. So then you lead with your Oracle and you make sure that you set another untap the Lotus thing on top. And then you do whatever it takes to get back to that. Usually a Cavalier of Gales or two. You just kind of dirtle and draw as many cards and make as much devotion as you can with all the mana, except for the last two or three for the untap effect. Then you use the untap effect again, make even more mana than last time, continue, you know, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, until you have more devotion than the size of your library. And, you know, it's just, again, it's so great. It's such a versatile deck because you can do things like maybe if you fizzle or you don't quite get to the end of your combo, but then you're able to, you know, blink your corridor monitor with your Sasa end of turn to untap your Nyx Lotus, and maybe that'll give you the last burst of mana that you need to finish the job. Or um, another nice thing that can happen is maybe you don't combo during your main phase, but all of the messing around that you've done during your main phase has drawn you enough cards and given you enough devotion so that when you get to your end step, then the Thassa blinking the Oracle is the thing that actually wins the game for you. So oh, yeah. yeah. There are just, it's, like, it's just one of these decks where, especially once things start happening, you just like your decision trees start branching out on your turn because you just have to, you do have to do a lot of math you have to think about what's left in your deck. And I, it's just one of the things that makes it the most fun for me to play. So one of the reasons I think a deck like this can be so successful, especially right now, is just that a lot of people don't really know what's going on or they don't quite know what to expect out of it. And so I've had all of these satisfying games where, like you were saying, I'm playing. maybe I'm playing against a control opponent who's like focusing too much on trying to control my, my Cavaliers or someone who's wasting a lot of time trying to deal with Sasa. And I've had these games where, like, the control opponent, you can tell that they just feel like, all right, I turn the corner, like, I have my Gadwick out, and, you know, maybe I've exiled your Sasa, and... Yeah, maybe they tap six mana for their Dream Trawler. Exactly, they slam their Dream Trawler, right? And they just think, like, oh, this this stupid blue deck's kind of run out of gas and, and whatever. And then, you know, I just untap, slam a Gadwick and start untapping my Nyx Lotus. And at some point you can just see the opponent go, oh, oh, damn. (laughs) Oh, I'm not taking another (laughs) Yeah, this game is actually over right now. Anyway, I just, it's one of my favorite things about the deck. I think probably, I, I, I don't think I'm ready to say that this is a top tier deck in the format, although I definitely think that it could be. And I definitely think that it has 
the kind of broken draws that can make it feel pretty unbeatable. What do you think about this deck as far as where it's positioned in the meta? I think that this is a deck that if people are prepared for it is bad. Yes. And if they're not, it is good. I also think that it is the kind of thing where if people, there have been multiple points in the last ever since Teferi uh, Time Raveler was printed, basically. But there have been multiple points in these formats where people stopped playing counter magic and really any kind of interaction because they just assumed Teferi would shut it off anyway. And if if we're kind of in a mid-range world, if like everybody's playing food versus fires, this deck can be really good because... Those those decks are kind of these snowbally things that need to get their engine going. And this deck, when its engine goes, you just win. You, it, like, the game can just end. And also, you are the blue deck, so the kind of interaction and the ways that it can pivot through sideboard is sort of towards playing a negate mystical dispute game and I'll kill you with Brazen Borrower and Cavalier, right? So it can play a fair just beat you down with flyers and counter important threats after sideboard. But if people are prepared for that, and if aggro is popular, then it's not very good. It's it's a pretty easy thing. So I would say it's like a targeted missile for the metagame, and I think there will be a right time for it. I'm really... I hope... I hope somebody brings it to Worlds because I think that is the kind of metagame where people won't bring aggro decks. It Like the pros historically, right? Shun, they shy away from aggro decks in high stake tournaments unless it's just so clearly the right thing to do because they like to interact. They like to feel some agency in the game. Every pro will usually talk about this at some point. And I think that, that is, that's a good time to be the deck that says, oh, you're doing your turn five thing, I'll just, you know, negate your key spells or get you to act and then kill you. And uh, yeah, I'm really interested to see what happens with it. It's very off the radar. You don't see it much on ladder because it's not, the meta is just too wide, right? There's too many things that can mess with it. But as soon as the meta settles into kind of a mid-range, here's the three best snowball-y decks, I think this could be a really nice curveball. And Regardless, if that never happens, if I can't make a believer, it is a lot of fun, as as you've clearly discovered. Like it is one of the most fun things to do right now. I agree. I agree. And you know, I just I would recommend it especially if if you're a player who hasn't really gotten into a combo deck before, if that's not really a style of play that you have explored. Uh, then I think that this is a really good place to start, actually, because it's the kind of combo deck where Like the, you know, even if your plan A of comboing doesn't work, you still have a very solid beatdown plan in place. And uh, so I think it's just friendly to that. And it's also, you know, the combo is only a couple of cards, so it's not not that big of a deal to kind of get it going. I just think that, yeah, like you said, it's a really fun deck. And it really, I mean, it really goes over the top of a lot of other mid-range strategies in the format. So I think any time like a mid-range deck, you know, like for example... If we continue to move more into like a Simic kind of, you know, mid-range rampy kind of thing where they're not trying to kill you on any particular time frame, then I think a deck like this could be really strong. Yeah, uh, Fires is a good example of a deck. If it doesn't kill you, then they have Fires out. They're not going to stop your combo. No. So <laughs> no, if indeed. they don't kill you at speed through a Brazen Borrower and a few blockers, you just... You just cr- 
you just destroy them. Uh, before we move off the deck, because I'm sure there, there's some other things to do, but uh, I just wanted to say I do have a YouTube video of it up, and I played against some opponents who were kind enough to let me actually play out the full combo, which is not normal when you're making YouTube content. So there is a video on my YouTube if you guys want to see the full combo going nuts. That's great. And I'll just put that in the show notes so people can go directly to that. I'll, you know, um, I'll, I'll get some links from you. And we'll just put whatever you think is kind of the best content for people to use to check you out. And we'll so so look in the show notes, and you'll get to see a lot of covert go blues good stuff there. Before we wrap up here, I just wanted to touch on a couple more decks that we've been seeing in the format. One really spicy meatball, which I've actually been getting destroyed by recently, is the green white boggles deck. I wonder if you've run into this on the ladder at all. <laughs> Destroyer of gold. That's that's what I call this deck. It is, um, yeah. If everybody is playing aggro and cutting their removal spells, this deck will destroy you. We're talking about a deck, how would you best kind of put it? It's like like good old Enchantress. When you say boggles, it's, it's kind of like hexproof. There isn't a lot of that outside of Paradise Druid. But yeah, you slap a whole bunch of auras on... Transcendent Envoys and Thetessen Champions and Paradise Druids, and you put all that glitters in there and you smash for like 50 million. Does that sound about right? Yep, yep. I think one of the tastiest things you can do is you can put the, uh, what's the, the eyes enchantment that gives creatures uh, vigilance and plus one, plus one? Vigilance and plus one, plus one eyes. Sentinel's, Sentinel's eyes. eyes. You got it. Yeah. Yep, that's it. So you slam that down on your Paradise Druid, and then lo and behold, you just have a, a permanently hex-proof attacker unless you mess up and manage to tap it for mana at some point. Uh, I, saw, I saw the Asian Avenger do that by mistake on stream. It was a pretty painful <laughs> painful to watch. But, but as long as you keep it untapped. Dude, Shade. If how are you ever going to get him on the podcast if you tell everybody about his misplays? <laughs> oh, he'll he'll be the first to tell you. You know, one of the things I love about his stream is that like his stream title is frequently like only the most average plays. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's very self aware. He's a great yep. guy. <laughs> love, I lo- he's one of my favorite streamers. By the way, check out the Asian Avenger if you haven't watched his content already. He's just a lot of fun to watch. So yeah, that's a fun thing that you can do with the deck. You also have access to Alcid of Life's Bounty, which is like another way to give your creatures hexproof or, or well, I guess protection really is what it is. Um, you also have Karametra's Blessing, which is that fun little combat trick that's just another way to protect your creature. Indestructible. So it's, it's basically like this, yeah. this Voltron plan. You're just trying to make this one big, scary, nasty creature and just kind of get in for max damage and, and protect it from everything. That is another deck that if people actually care and run the Angrass Rampages and the Liliana's Triumphs and things like Shock and Disfigure, you're going to have a hard time. But um, that's why I call it like the Terror of Gold, because everybody's just playing aggro with no removal spells, and they're facing down like a an 8-9 Transcendent Envoy or something on turn three, and it, it's just <laughs> over. Like, what are you going to do? Exactly. What are you going to do? <laughs> exactly. And actually, I think you highlighted a good thing, which is that this deck is weak to the same kinds of things that Dream Trawler is weak to. So if it does start to get more play in the meta, I think people will probably be teching similarly against those two different threats, which is the kind of thing that makes a deck like this a little bit weaker. Because if you're the only deck in the archetype 
putting out like hexproof threats or you know put or assembling these kind of one big battle cruiser or like defend the queen kind of victories a lot of other incidental hate is also going to hit your win condition unlike a deck that runs dream trawler like if someone manages to target you or if someone manages to disrupt your thing in this deck you are just game over <laughs> it's like yeah. there is no plan b you know this han solo is not coming back to rescue you on, on a similar note though i want to talk about like there's kind of the you can take the enchantment package which let's just say it in general enchantment the enchantment package is a lot better than i thought it would be in theros and you can take it in a different direction very much built around card advantage and not quite worried about how quickly it's it smashes the face where you can run the Satessan Champion, the Nessian Wanderer, the one that lets you pull a land out of your top three every time you play an enchantment. And you can play Dryad of the uh, Elysian, Elysian Grove, which lets you play... It's an enchantment creature that lets you play extra lands. And if you like get those three things going together, you can have like 10 mana out on turn five or something. And that's a pretty gross engine too. I'm still trying to fully exploit it wasn't too surprising that what i landed on was nissa and hydroid crisis as what to do with all that land but it's kind of nutty because that dryad makes all your lands forests which i didn't think would matter i thought that that was overkill until you realize that you're like like just how big of a crisis you're casting with six lands even though only one of them is really a forest so okay that's an interesting question i have so let's say you have nissa and you have the dryad out at the same time and obviously if you tap your land as a forest then it's going to make two green mana but let's say that you tap the land for something else is it going to make one of that color and then one green mana is that right with the Dryad on the battlefield, you will tap it for one mana of any color you like, mm -hmm. and you get a green okay. mana. Okay, okay. If Nissa's is on the battlefield as well. That's awesome. Yep. Okay, now bonus question. Let's say you have that 7-drop 5-5 five five that triples your mana. <laughs> How much mana do you then get? Well, that the, the Nyxbloom Ancient reads that if you tap a land, it produces triple that mana instead. And Nissa says that if you tap a forest, it produces an additional green. So you're tapping for two. Doubling that would be four. Tripling that would be eight. Now, here's my question, though, is does, does the Nyx Bloom thing happen first or does Nissa's additional mana happen first? Because that's what I'm curious about, right? I, be I, be I believe it works favorably. That is, I believe you would get eight mana each. You're welcome to correct me. Not a judge. Just play one on stream. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, I'm. <laughs> I'm sure that this is going to come up a lot for anyone using that card. Is like, you know, there's going to be these various mathy scenarios. And I mean, you know, the short answer is you're making a million mana. But you know, <laughs> look, look, I've made the last time I had all these pieces moving. I didn't actually pay attention. I just noticed I had one thousand mana in my mana pool, <laughs> and I moved on. Okay, that's it. That's all you need to know. Like, what, what do you want? What do you want from me? Is precision necessary <laughs> at that point? <laughs> is it really? Is that what you came here for? Pre precision? I, I precisely cast Finale of Devastation for 10 or more, and the more happened to be like 200. So what? That's it. Uh, you know, you, you, you have certain spells where there's no, there's no technical cap for how much you need to cast them, but there's kind of an effective cap where exactly the finales make it nice and easy for you. Ten and over, you win the game. Let's move on.
Thank God. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank, thank God. I would still be here adding mana to my mana pool. Otherwise, uh... <laughs> it's draining as we speak. Cool. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot more going on in this format. We haven't done a comprehensive rundown. I'm just curious if there's any kind of last thoughts that you have, any particular pet cards, um, any interactions that have really been on your mind. So for my YouTube channel, I try to record with a different deck every single day. Oh, I love it. 365. It presents a unique challenge where I have to at least in some way competently present a different deck every single day, which means if I had a great day with blue-white control yesterday, I don't run it back. I'm on to the next thing. So every single day, I'm kind of relearning a new archetype, but I... That the Satessian champion like Dryad package that I mentioned is a really hard one to get away from that I keep running. Um, Enigmatic Incarnation is a ridiculous card that is the four mana sacrifice an enchantment to fetch a creature that costs one more than that enchantment, put it onto the battlefield during your end step. It feels like that card shouldn't be that interesting, but then it's like I ran it in a deck where I splash blue into my junk food deck, and I use that card to just get a Mayhem Devil every single end step. So I just always had my Mayhem Devil to go with my stupid cat oven Trail of Crumbs Corval nonsense, and it was insane. Plus, you haven't really seen cat oven until you've seen it with Yarrick as well. Um, oh, snap. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like there, there's so many different things that you can do, and something that Wizards has done a weird They've done something weird. There used to be a serious deck building cost to power. Um, a good example of this is Nicole Bolas, Dragon God, and Kaya's Wrath. These are cards that are hard to cast. They're um, Niv-Mizzet, the Perun. That is another one. So is Reborn, quite honestly. These are cards that are difficult to cast, and that's the trade-off for their power. But the Cat-Oven combo, all it asks is that you play one black mana. The, um, yeah, uh, Fires of Invention only asks for a single red mana, you know? These are things that can slot into all kinds of shells, and they create all kinds of deck-building options. People are, are pretty obsessed with finding the perfect home for them, and the, that's what rises up ladder because they're so good. But there's nothing, like, stopping you from playing Fires of Invention, Enigmatic Incarnation, Go Fetch Niv-Mizzet Reborn on your end step after playing a free spell or two off your fires. And then you also have all your mana untapped to maybe Dovin's Veto, the opponent's reaction. I, it, it's like there's all these shells that you can fit these powerful effects in. So when you ask if I have a pet card, it's more like there's all these pet shells that I just keep on wanting to slot. Well, what if I do this with that and that with this, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I think that's great. And and I like that you highlighted this Elysian Dryad, Satessan Champion kind of thing, because, you know, we see this a lot in Magic where you get these clusters, right? Like, for example, um, the Explore package is something that people are all, always talking about in these previous formats or, or in the current standard format, the Elementals package. Yeah, which is which is another thing that's back in a huge way with Thassa, totally right? the the blinking elemental is now a deck. That's it. Yeah, I I just watched Crokey's streaming his version of the deck, which was he was using the Acroan War, which seemed to be doing a lot of work. So he had like a playing Agent of Treachery and 
claim the firstborn. So it's <laughs> just just the whole the whole steel package going on there and uh, doing work, man. And it's especially disgusting when you realize that the titans can all be stolen by claim the firstborn, right? That's <laughs> uh, claim the firstborn can also give them haste if they're your type. Oh, okay. Oh, that's, that's yeah. pretty yeah. sweet. So yeah, definitely you got to be on the lookout for these interactions. I've definitely had games where spoiler alert: if if you're playing against a deck that has both red mana available and Thassa on the table, you have to think very carefully about which threats you play out onto the board because they may very soon not be your threats anymore. So yeah. that's just, you know, that's something to think about. And and definitely just the Thassa-agent combo alone. It's like anytime you see Thassa, you have to be prepared. And I'll tell you what, I don't know that I can remember the last time I won a game in which someone had both Thassa and agent at the same time. It's like if you don't have immediate removal for that agent, you're probably just done. Which is kind of exciting for a seven mana two three, right? Like that, that like that's an example of an over the top engine that can end the game. Decks built around that are really built on this like risen reef kind of snowbally thing. I think that they need a bit more interaction to make sure they get to seven because everybody is out to kill you before you do that thing. Just just to let you guys who are all up on that elemental package in in on a secret that you may have learned by now, but uh, people are bashing your face. You might, you might want to interact a little more on the way up the chain. I think, so yeah, the dream curve for Kroki's deck, I think goes something like um, turn one Arboreal Grazer into turn two Risen Reef into turn three uh, Green Cavalier into... Turn four agents of treachery. <laughs> so that's his that's his dream curve right there, which you know, if you manage to chain all of that off and then follow it up with a Thassa on turn five, that's pretty much gonna be game over. But of course, that's assuming that all of your pieces go well, and then of course you have to be playing the sloth. So talk about deck building concessions there, right? Oh, the grazer? Man. Well, you know, Golos proved how broken that card can be. So ever since then, it's been nothing but Grazer spam up in here. I love designs like this where it's like still polarizing in the community about whether that's a playable card or not. If you ever, if you ever needed evidence that magic is like like a good magic play or the right magic play is actually more subjective than you ever thought it was. All you have to do is cast Thought Erasure on, while you're streaming and ask chat, what do I pick? <laughs> and you will get every conceive like every card in the hand will get mentioned, even the lands at some point by Twitch chat. <laughs> but Magic's a very subjective game, and I think that's part of why it's still alive. I think if everything were obvious about what's good, what's bad, um, I mean, I'll probably be wrong about a good amount of things I say today because that's the nature of Magic. But I think that's one of the best things about the game is that different people can have such different opinions about what's good and what's what's the right play, what's the best card, what's the best deck, and, well, if this happens, then this, but that never happens. And, like, the arguments that you see Magic players get into um, is kind of... It, it's just illuminating to what a complicated game it is and how much, like, our own individual experiences color 
what's right and what's wrong about it. And I think that's part of the great thing about it. Thanks for letting me rant and coming to my TED Talk. I couldn't have said it bad to myself. And I think that that's probably a good place to, to wrap up this episode. We've gone long. We've discussed many things. We've gone many places. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure having you on this show. And before we peace out, I just wanted to, you know, give you a moment to plug any online resources that you have that you haven't already shared. So where can people find you on all of the different platforms? Hey, listeners. If you would like to find me on absolutely all of the platforms, look for Covert Go Blue as one word. You will find me that way on the YouTube. You will find me on the Twitter. You will find me on the Twitch. You will find me on, I'm sure, something else. But those are the ones most people ask about. And uh, yeah, send me a message. I have a Discord server. It's free to anybody if you want to come in and talk magic. Uh, talk with me, talk with other people who are into it. There's a link to that in every single video I put on YouTube. So you can join that. We have over 3,000 people in there if you just want to hang out and chat with somebody about magic. And yeah, I, I put up a daily video, different deck every day, like I mentioned before. That's the main way to keep up with what I'm up to is on YouTube. So uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to talk directly to you, the listener. We now move on from a <laughs> scheduled programming. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, thanks so much, CVG. Um, it's been CGB, rather. Make sure I get those in the right order. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on this show, and I will look forward to you know seeing your daily decks as the weeks progress and seeing where we end up in this crazy format. Have a good night, my friend. You too. Thank you. So there you are. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks again for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have your listening ears. You can find us at Arena Craft Pod on social media. You can also email us at arenacraftpod at gmail.com. Arena Craft Pod, that's the tag. Don't wear it out or do. Sounds good to me. But anyway, I would love to hear your feedback. So get in touch, join the Discord. Thanks again for listening, and until next week. Collective throat break. (laughs) 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 Dragon breath. What's wrong with your throat? (laughs) (laughs) The Arena Craft Podcast. Welcome back. (laughs) I feel like I need to be stroking a cat now. Hmm. I do have one. Oh, excellent. Okay, okay. To be disclosed. Next time, Gadget. Next time. (laughs) You're surprisingly good at that.